Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Working at a media agency can provide ample opportunities to support a variety of clients across a number of different industries. But no two industries, let alone clients, are truly alike. Opportunities to support theatrical movie studios can be particularly limited given that there are only a handful of them in the entire world. But today's guest, Larry Medeiros, has had the chance to work with the likes of Sony, Paramount, and Warner Brothers. You'd expect most kids to gravitate towards TV and video games growing up, but a young Larry Medeiros found his passion in radio, and he pursued that passion, enrolling in the radio broadcasting program at Canador College. After graduation, Larry worked both on-air and behind the scenes for small market radio stations in North Bay, Brockville, and Cornwall, Ontario. But the radio opportunities began to dry up, leaving Larry to ponder what was next for his career. A friend recommended an entry-level role at a media agency, and the rest is history. Larry Medeiros stops by to talk about his early days in radio, a media buying and planning career rooted primarily in theatrical studio business, working directly for Warner Brothers, and the challenges of navigating movie business during the COVID-19 pandemic. I've been in this industry for 23 plus years. Uh, What a wild ride it's been. Started off on uh, alcohol business way back when in the late 90s. And then I came on board and I started doing uh, entertainment accounts, theatrical uh, specifically. And I worked for uh, Sony, Paramount, and then Warner Brothers. And at Warner Brothers, I was actually in-house on client side. And it was just, it's been a great, great career so far. Uh, I've enjoyed my time working on on all these different accounts and uh, looking forward to what I guess the future has for us in store. As uh, we all know, things keep changing uh, pretty much week by week, month by month in this industry. But it's been a great ride. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Larry, I am very much looking forward to this conversation. We've known each other for years. And just to let the audience know, and I don't know if you know this, but you were one of my very first clients when I made the jump from coordinator to sales in my TV days. Yeah, yeah, that's been it's been many years, and uh, I do remember uh, we we started I think pretty much almost almost neck and neck, but yeah, it's been uh, many years of knowing each other and always crossing paths with each other. Well, I'm glad our paths could cross for this. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? You know, born raised in, in Toronto, moved around a little bit, but Toronto. So pretty much within the GTA, you'd say? Yeah, GTA. Uh, you know, Toronto, Oakville. Uh, Hamilton area now, a, a tiny little farming community out in Hamilton area that's uh, grown, obviously. But uh, yeah, it's GTHA now, I guess you can say. <laughs> and so what was life like growing up in Toronto or other parts of the GTA for you? It was good. You know, no issues, no issues on my end. Good family, uh, very large, very large family, an array of, of cousins and aunts and uncles and always together at someone's house and uh, had good friends. School was good. Uh, I didn't have um, any issues. Well, you know, when you're young, you're not really into school. You're more into the friendships that you make. So I, I had that going. It was great. The neighborhood was was really, really good for us. Uh, kids everywhere. You knew everybody's parents. You knew everyone knew you. So, yeah, it was, it was really good. What the area that I grew up in. What about your your interest, your hobbies growing up? I mean, what was your passion? Oh, my passion. I You know, as you grow up, uh, there's always things that you do with your friends that you like. You know what I mean? Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them got into the arcade, got into the billiards. 
the big thing that I always liked, I, which was funny, I would get made fun of for this, but I always enjoyed radio. I always enjoyed listening to radio. I enjoyed listening to the DJs, the newscasters, uh, sportscasters, you name it. I enjoyed listening to live program radio. And I enjoyed it so much that it was just something that stuck with me and something that I, I prefer radio over television. At, at times, like I would never have a, a TV on in my house. I would always have the radio on so I can listen to um, what's coming up, what's happening. It was just an interest of mine. Other than doing the regular stuff that, you know, when you're young, you do, whether it's you're playing baseball, you're cycling, you're playing hockey with friends. Um, that was always outdoor and fun. But like uh, everywhere I went, whether I went to the ball diamond, whether I was at the rink, I always brought a radio with me and I would be playing whatever station I'd want to hear and just listen live to whoever was on air. And I became very familiar with how radio formats uh, worked back in those days. Was it music or talk radio that uh, you gravitated towards? Uh, it started with music. So it started with, you know, love of classic rock. Uh, way back when they used to play heavier than classic rock as well. So it started with music. But over the years, as I grew up a little more and I got into radio a little more, it became talk radio. I loved listening to people banter. I love them making, uh, listening to them make connections on air and, and with, with the listener and just get into it. So um, it started with music. I still, you know, love the music, but talk radio is something that I, I truly, truly enjoy. Okay. So who was, I guess, the DJ or the on air personality that first brought you into radio? I'd probably say like Brother Jake way, way back when on Toronto radio. Uh, he was the one that was fun, was loud. He, he can speak to an array of listeners and get them on air and get them to do things and get them to have fun with him. I think Brother Jake and then uh, moving on to Derringer. I think those two were the ones that back in, in the very early 80s and, and mid 80s, they were the ones that uh, created a lot of havoc on air. And I, I really enjoyed, that's what got me into it. I was only, I think, I'm trying to think how old I was, but like 10 to 12 years old, I'd say, when I really started listening in and, and just really getting involved with it and, and enjoying that format. So what's the station that gets you most nostalgic? Like, even if it's not carrying the same format that it did years ago, mm -hmm. like what station resonates with you? Like for me, I mean, the classics were big with my parents. So 1050 Chum before yeah. it became TSN. Exactly. was the one thing that resonated with me. How about you? Um, Ten fifty chump definitely, you know, chump countdown. That that was a big one in our house. Like I, I knew uh, my mother loved music as well, so that was a big one. But for me, with classic rock, it was always. Um, I had an uncle who lived with us, and he was more of like an older brother, and he was always into the classic rock music and classic rock, you know, uh, culture. So um, Q one hundred seven, I would say, was the one that when I listen back to, to when I think back to some of the shows and some of the programs on there, it, it was, I always enjoyed and I, it always takes me back. I still listen to it to this day. You mentioned your uncle who was like an older brother to you. You cite him, correct me if I'm wrong, as being probably one of your biggest influences growing up. You know, I mentioned earlier, good neighborhood and we had lots of friends and lots of family, but you know, within your family, there's always someone that you gravitate to. And this uncle of mine, he was, uh, he was someone I gravitated to a lot. And he, he would, he was, I was always hanging around him. I always wanted to be with him. You always want to be with someone who you think, you know, when you're young, they're so cool and, and they're great to hang out with. And, and he loved it. He took me, um, as if I was his little brother and he took me to our first, uh, hockey game, the first Leafs game, Jays. He got me into football and took me to football game, the Argos. We hung out a lot. Like he, he was heavy into sports 
heavy into the classic rock genre. And that's what I guess started it off for me and, and, and it continues to this day. So um, still, you know, love talking to him and hanging with him. And he got me into when it was summertime, he, uh, whenever he had time, we would play a lot of sports outdoors and, and I always hung out with him. So it was really, you know, a lot of fun. Like many of my guests, their first part-time gigs or their first jobs altogether are usually in retail. Tell me how you landed at Bargain Heralds. <laughs> oh, Bargain Heralds. Could we call um, Bargain Heralds kind of like the Dollarama of the 80s? It, that, you know what? It was. It, that it and Byway. Like, I mean, oh, but Bargain Heralds was pre-Byway. Byway came on after. So That's Bargain true, Heralds yes. was, was the, the, the first, like the OG, I guess you would say. And it started, it was, it was in walking distance to my house uh, when I was living in Etobicoke. I just remember my dad just one time saying, you know what? Summers are fun. It's time for you to get a part-time job now. <laughs> just like that, you know? <laughs> Portuguese, European father, like, go make some money and go do something now, you know? So I'm like, all right, like, where am I going to go? And then it was my mother going, let's see if that place up the road, you know, if they're hired, why not? I was 12 at the time, 12. You were walked you in. I was oh 12. That's when I started. And that's when, yeah, very, very young. Not even 13 yet, not a teen. And my dad was already like, I think it's time you make some money. <laughs> so, yeah, we walked up. I uh, I went in. I had uh, my mother with me. And we walked in. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a scrawny-looking little kid, pimples all over the face. And, hi, excuse me, can I see the manager, you know, kind of thing. No resumes at the time, nothing. Just like, can I see the manager? And then, sure enough, cashier grabs the manager. And I'm standing with my mom. I'm like, hi, my name is Larry. And, uh I'd like a part-time job. Are you hiring? Just like that. And he looked me up and down. He said, yeah, we're actually looking on taking some students. The interview was all of like five minutes. And he said, here's what you'll be doing. Do you think he can handle that? I said, sure. Filled out an application. Within three days, I had I was uh, on, on a schedule there at Bargain Heralds. <laughs> oh, God. Do you remember those old applications for part-time jobs? Like they would give you a paper copy of it and you had to fill it out yeah. with a pencil. Like you, literally they were judging your penmanship. Oh, of course. Well. They're doing that. It was terrible. It was terrible. But, it, you know, it worked. I, I got the job. It was so quick, like so quick. And it was in the neighborhood. So uh, obviously I did not have a license at the time. So everything had to be, for me, had to be within biking or walking distance. So I'd either take my bike or I'd walk over. And uh, it was great because there were others in there that were about my age, maybe a year or two older or right at my age that we all worked together. And you just made it again. That was a separate group of friends that you made. That wasn't a school friends. It wasn't your street friends, but it was coworkers. And they were just, it was just a separate set of friends that you made that that made it fun to work at this place. You, You didn't think of it as work. You just went in and you were hanging with your friends. So it was, and you're getting paid. Do you remember what you did with your first paycheck from Bargain Heralds? Wow, what did I do? I, I, I don't remember. I don't know. I probably just uh, did what my dad told me to do: put it in the bank. <laughs> and That's I, a very European you know, thing to do. Just put it in the bank. Yeah, very European thing, and uh, I put it in the bank. But yeah, I, don't, I, I didn't splurge on anything. One thing about about my folks is if I needed something. They were the ones that would, they wouldn't let me spend any money that I would make. They would always say, keep that for your future. So I always kept it for my future. 
And they would be like, okay, you know what? Your bike is destroyed or your bike got stolen and they would replace it or they would go out, you know? So my money was just kept for my future for school down the road and then living down the road. So it, it was different. After high school, you pursued your passion in radio at the college level. Why did you select the Canada College in North Bay? So I got accepted. I was very excited because my high school, I mean, <laughs> I did... I did what I could just to get by and I had more fun than, than, than doing academics. So I got accepted. I was excited to go and I thought, you know what? I want to move. I want to move out. I want that experience of just living on my own and I want to do this. So I did, I took the leap. I uh, replied back and said, I'm coming and uh, I moved and I took radio because that was such a passion that I was into. I was so excited to take it. And I was really excited to just uh, go live on my own and experience all that. Okay, so two follow-up questions to that. The first one is, what was life like in North Bay? Because someone who'd lived in Toronto or suburban Toronto their entire life, was there any sort of culture shock that came with moving to North Bay? Uh, yeah. So in Toronto, you're busy. Or, as, uh, you know, where I live, the TTC is at your door. Stores are open 24-7. Things are moving you know, people everywhere, cars everywhere, it's busy. When I moved to North Bay, it's, you know, North Bay is a little city, a little town at the time, and it wasn't as busy. And you, you didn't have bus service at the time on Sundays. And the bus schedule is very, it, it was, it was timed so much between nine to five that if you needed something after five or before nine, well, you're going to wait a while. Uh, taxis, there was like maybe, you know, a handful of, of cabs that you can take that you knew who they were and you made friends with them saying, Hey, listen, I can't catch a bus. So I'm going to need you in a little while. And moving to the school, the area that it was at, it was, it was placed um, uh, up, up the mountain and had a beautiful view up there of, of, of Lake Nipissing. It was gorgeous. And, but it was very quiet, very student oriented, obviously. And going into town, like you'd have to make friends with, with people who had a car so you can go into town and go do what you need to do whether you're shopping for food or whether you're going out. So it was, it was a bit of a culture shock, but I think that's what made me really enjoy small towns. Cause, cause you know, years down the road to this day, I'm in a small town. I love living in a small town. My second follow-up question is about the program. Is there anything you learned studying radio broadcasting that surprised you about the radio industry? Like something that you just didn't know existed in the background. Like maybe it could be something as simple as you had no idea that things were as structured as they were. You thought maybe the, Maybe the honor personalities were flying by the seat of their pants. That's that's one thing. Yes, that I was a little bit surprised with. I, at the time, I did think that they were a little bit more of, of seat, flying by the seat of their pants. Once I took the program and I actually got on air, that's when we really, really learned. You everything is timed to the minute. Everything, whether you're going to a commercial whether you're going to a promo, whether you're ready to hit that song post and then come out of the song, go into the next song, every single thing is time. So when we're ad-libbing, what I thought was always fly by the seat of your pants, it's, it can be if you're experienced enough. As a student, you are not experienced enough. So you have to write your ad-libs down and you have to try and hit that. Whether you're talking 45 seconds or a minute 45, you have to make sure that you hit that post because the song's got to come on and the commercial that pays for you to be on has to come on at the exact time they expect to be on. And that's our role. So I was pretty surprised at, at how much time you had to look at 
and to make sure that you hit to be on air and to get everything moving. What about the other nuances with being on the radio? Like, say, for example, your radio voice. And the reason I ask this question is just the other night I was watching Jimmy Kimmel and Robert Pattinson was on and he's going to be playing the next Batman in the Batman. And he was talking about what he went through to get that voice for Batman to differentiate it from Bruce Wayne. Did you guys have any classes about that? And if not, did you find yourself just working the mic to try to train yourself to say, you know, this is what I want the voice to sound like? Because I got to imagine that the first time you did something on air or something that was recorded, you went back and listened to it and goes, oh, that's not what I thought I sound like. That's exactly it. The first time I heard myself on air, I couldn't believe that's what my voice sounded like because that's the first time I, I think I ever listened to what my voice was. And it was embarrassing. I, I couldn't believe that was me. And I was like, wow, I, I, don't, I didn't know I sounded like that. And we all did it in a class where they played everyone's first time on air, their voice, so everyone can hear themselves. And everyone in class was just embarrassed that that's what they sounded like. So we did have um, a class at the time to train our voices, not, not so much to train our voices to be deeper or low or higher, but to make sure that you articulate every word Make sure you slow down because some of us were just speed talkers and you couldn't even understand what was being said. And so, you you know, they really wanted you to focus in on how you're speaking, articulating your words, um, coming across clear uh, and making sure that you're, you're not, um, I guess, uh, speeding through anything. So we did have classes to train our voice and that always sticks in the back of your mind. When we were on air, it was like, what was that again I'm supposed to do? Let me try this. How do I do it? And over time, when we kept listening back to our, our shows and we kept listening back to what we were doing on air, over time, you would see a significant difference um, in, in where we started to where we were going and where we ended up. After graduation, though, you managed to parlay that into a radio gig. So where did you move on to after? I moved a little bit around Ontario, Cornwall, Brockville, North Bay. What happened was, you know, you start off as as coming in low man on the totem pole, and it was all small markets that I got in. And in Brockville, it was at um, CFJR, and I worked. So what I did, I wasn't fully on air when I worked at stations. I would do the weekend um, requests, Saturday requests, Sunday requests. I would do that. But the other times, what I was doing is producing um, the ads that go on air and producing um, any type of voiceovers from your morning DJs or your drive DJs that go on air. When I was on air, there was a show that I, I used to do in these small towns. You know, they all have their own quirky shows. There was one in Brockville where they did. It was the garage sale hour. And from 12 to 1 every day. And it was, it's incredible because it was their highest rated Monday to Friday hour of programming where people will call in. And they will say, hey, I have a 25-foot ladder for sale. Um, it's in good working order. I just need it out of my garage. Um, let me know if anyone's interested. And I would go out there and I'd let the listeners know, so-and-so has a ladder for sale. He's looking for this much. If you think you want it, give us a call at the station here. We will hook you up. And our phone lines were lit up the full hour for anything that people were trying to to sell or to move out of their garage. It, it was great because you met so many people um, from the communities doing something like that. It sounds like the love child of like, I don't know, radio and eBay. Or <laughs> it's, 
That, yeah, it's like the live version of Kijiji. Exactly. Like, and people would show up at the station saying, hey, do you have, you know, that product here or this or that? And we'd be like, no, no, no. You, we, give, <laughs> we gave you the person's name. And now it's for you to contact them. You have to go to their place and get it. And be like, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. And it, it was just such a community thing, like such a small community feel um, from that that you got where people were doing um, every day. They were just trying to clean out whatever they had. And it'd be amazing because this ran Monday to Friday every day. And every day you'd get different people calling with different things that they're trying to, to sell. And it was such a success for the community. They, it was, they loved it. Um, in North Bay, all country stations at the time, all country. So um, a couple competing stations, you know, um, they had one was like um, country, another was country. And then the third one was, was more, I guess you would say like pop music. But once again, small stations and you, you would have your hand in everything. You would have your hand in in writing a commercial, you would have your hand in producing that commercial with the jingle or or with the DJ coming on and reading it. You would have your hand in making sure it gets on air. So when you're in a small market, you you do quite a bit more than a larger market. So I, I enjoyed my time. I, I you know, for, for the two and a half years of I basically just moved around, lived out of a backpack and, and moved around and enjoyed my time working in radio. When you're at a station and the theme of the station or the format of the station isn't something that maybe you're organically, I guess you could say passionate about. Like, I don't know if you're a country music fan or anything like that, but let's say for hypothetically, you're not a country music fan. When you land at a station like that, do you throw yourself into the genre to say, okay, you know what, if I'm going to be convincing as a DJ or just even within the community, I've got to find a way to make this my passion or at least get into it so I can at least the listeners there'll be a bit of trust between myself and the listeners when I'm recommending this song or talking about this or that. You have to. And, and that's where you have to put aside like um, the type of music that you enjoy because you don't know where you're going to, you're going to end up. I knew I wanted to be in radio and I didn't really care what the genre was. I just wanted to be at a station. I wanted to be working in there. I didn't care if it was all talk or if it was music, if it was all news. So yes, I had very, very little knowledge of country. When I went to North Bay, I learned what country was because it was all country. You know, you start growing into that genre. You start learning a lot about it. So, yeah, you do. You have to make sure that you come across to your listeners knowing what the music is. And you have to come across knowing that they can come to you if they have any questions that they're looking for some artist or they're looking for some song and they can't remember, but it goes like this, you know, you're, you're there for them to help them out with that. And yeah, it was something that, um, you learn from station to station and you just learn different genres and you just go from there. And it, it wasn't difficult because you're doing it every day and you're working in that environment every day and you're working with people who enjoy that genre every day. So the learning comes pretty quick and you pick it up pretty quick. So, um, yeah, but it was something that I definitely had to wrap my head around uh, once I got to the stations that I was at. Just one last thing while we're still talking about your radio career, the garage sale program that uh, that you hosted. I imagine there had to be a contingency plan if there happened to be a day when no one was selling anything and no one was going to call in because you were really relying on people to call in for mm -hmm. content. What was the backup plan for that? Or if was there even one? You know what? I don't even know what the backup plan was for that because people called all the time. 
And we even had, like, there were times where we had people who would call and leave voice messages um, on a machine at the time uh, that we couldn't get to, and we'd use them for the next day or the next day, and it would continue like that because there were times we just ran out of time. There was a lot of times we ran out of time, and we had to record them and say, okay, we'll get you on air tomorrow. So I don't know what the backup plan was if if no one called, but from what I saw, people people called and people loved this program. So tell us a little bit about your move out of radio and into media buying and planning. So why did you leave? How did you leave? And what brought you to M2 Universal back in Toronto? At the time, it was all just all contract work, you know, three months here, six months here, four months here kind of thing and and small markets. So, you know, as my contract was running out, I ended up back in Toronto. And for a couple months, I, you know, I was out of work and Toronto was a very big, big market to get into in radio. Um, so I started worrying about like, where's my next paycheck coming from? What am I going to do next? I'm on my own here. I need to do something. So I got to work at MT Universal. I knew, uh, I had a, a very good friend of mine who was working there and he reached out saying, Hey, you know what? We're looking for someone. Uh, we're looking for someone on this account and, uh, here's what you'd be doing. You want to come on and, and give it a try. And I said, yeah, you know what? Uh, I need something for sure. I'll come on board and let's go. And that's how I got to, uh, that's how I got my start. It was at MT Universal and I was working at the time. I started on the uh, Molson uh, beer account. Tell us a little bit about working on the Molson account. I have to imagine your very first radio buy. I mean, for one station, it must've been what, enough to fund one of the smaller stations that you were working <laughs> at for like an entire year? Oh my goodness. What? Well, yeah, it was so um, eye-opening, but yeah, it was, a, it was a fun account. We were all young. We were all either fresh out of school or, or, you know, a lot of us just that first, second kind of, of job to get the career going. And we all got along really well. And we were always together, whether it was for breakfast, lunch, sometimes dinners, we would hang out. And it just felt our group at the time within that agency just felt really tight. And we had a really good, you know, a couple of bosses that we report to. And it just, it went really, really well. And we just enjoyed we had a good time working with each other we learned from each other you know mistakes happened of course they happened but they got fixed and we moved on and it was something that we i think because of the relationships we had with each other i think that's what made it uh worth sticking with it and making sure we do right by the client and that they would be happy with their product um with what we're doing with their product so what brought you to omd so OMD, so what happened was a transition period at M2, uh, clients getting shifted around, people getting shifted around. So it was a little bit of a transition there. So I started looking and I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to expand out of, out of, uh, alcohol, out of beer client. And I'm going to see what, what else is there. So I came on to OMD as a junior beta buyer, just getting my feet wet, still, still very new, I guess, new ish in the industry, uh, getting my feet wet on packaged goods and, and learning all about packaged goods and, um, which is, different obviously from how um, the alcohol brand worked and um, I went there as a junior buyer and I picked up as much knowledge as I could um, on that on that account why do we classify this is more of a hypothetical thing for industry but why do we separate alcohol from CPG because you can get the same thing no I'm seriously they're both at the grocery store and I'm sure purists from both sides will come at me and say you can't say that but I find it kind of weird that we keep them so vastly separated like why do we why do we tend to romance one category more so than the other? The the alcohol category is is like when people think of it, it's like an adult brand that should stand on its own. 
that you're advertising adult only type product. Whereas as CPG is like, it's everyone. It's from one to 99, everyone included, everyone needs it, everyone has to use it, everyone needs our product. So it was always something that was always separate. As far as far back as I remember, this was never uh, categorized into one. It was always something that was separate. Putting aside the differences in the products though, talk about how your job at OMD was different or even similar to M2 Universal. Cause I imagine you were still working on buy sheets, still negotiating, buying programs and so forth. Like, were there any differences or was it more or less the same? There were some differences. So uh, with M2 Universal, I did a lot of the, you know, the grunt work at the bottom to learn. Um, you know, we had, we had uh, at the time, very heavy, thick Nielsen books that I had to open up a whole bunch of markets from Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, you name it. And we had to look at the programs, how are they doing? And I had to chart them on charts and, and see what the ratings were doing for these programs. Um, you know, have them all set up so I can pass that information along to the junior buyers and the buyers. So when they're negotiating with the network saying, I want to be in this or that, they can see what's doing well for them. As a junior buyer, I became that person where I, I took on like a couple minor markets in packaged goods. And I would take that information from, um, from, um, uh, the assistants and I would start then making my own calculations of what I'd want to buy and what I'd, uh, what I'd want to be in, uh, according to the information that I was given. So there was, there was some overlap of course, but there was also some stuff that, that was, uh, new that I was learning on the package goods account. Something that I learned when I made the jump to TV sales and when I first met you, and it wasn't just from you that I'd heard this from, or no, it was other people I'd heard this from. I don't want to say that it was you who said this to me, but one thing I learned was, is that buyers and planners are very apprehensive to touch new programming, regardless of who's producing it and where it's from, because they are not sure how it's going to perform. Did you find that yourself when you were doing uh, broadcast buying and planning? Yeah, because, and that's the whole thing. So they like the tried and true tested, you know, that's out there and they know what it's going to get them. They know how much, you know, what the CPMs are on those programs and, and, and they're very comfortable with them. When it's something new for a lot of people, it's a high risk factor and they will say they will back off from it. And even I did at the time too, I back off from it because it's like, well, I know it's got this person in the, in the program acting in the program, but I really don't know if it's going to last four weeks. Is it going to be there by January? So a lot of people don't want that, that risk factor in their buys because what it meant was more work for you because you had to either replace an A's or you had to replace whatever you were buying and start. Some people had to start over because their CPMs were all out of whack now because some of the new programs that they were buying no longer existed. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? So I think it, it became, people became very weary of, what they were looking for uh, when they were putting these packages together. And it, it, it was a tough struggle to, to put some new programming on these, on these packages. Talk to me about your move to do North, because I guess this is where the bulk of your client experience rests, or at least it started because this is your first crack at working in the entertainment industry. It was, and I never looked back once I started in the entertainment industry. I moved over to do North senior media buyer. So I took on more, um, uh, bigger markets that I was, I was in control of for, for Sony pictures at the time. And it was great. I felt that the entertainment, uh, industry moved at a pace that I was comfortable with, with, it was always quick. There was always something on the go. 
and you were always buying something like, you know, four weeks, five weeks, next movie, four weeks, five weeks, next movie. It was always on the go. And you always had a fresh new product, which was the film that got the audience excited. It, it was something that people always looked forward to. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed um, being in the entertainment industry. And that's where I got my start. It was at this little shop due north. And it was wonderful. Do you remember the very first film you worked on for Sony at Due North? I don't know. There was a Godzilla at the time. Uh, there was was, that, was that the one in your 2000s? The one where, oh God, what I remember yes, most. Yes, yes. Puff Daddy had done a cover with Jimmy Page. No, he yes. was sampling Jimmy Page. And he was, yes. Yeah. It's the early one in the early 2000s. That was the one. That was that was one of my very first. One. There was a horror that came out at the same time as well. I don't remember the name of it. Oh man, I wish I did. But it was like those two films back to back were the first ones that I worked on when I started at Sony. And you get to screen the movies in advance, don't you? Because they want to make sure that you understand what the movie's like, and you've got that in mind when you're doing the buys, correct? Yes. So it's 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 part of the job. You know, you got to watch these movies. So. We can understand what we have to put out there for the audience because not all movies, obviously, is is from for every single person. So we need to watch and see how the movie breaks down, what's in the movie that we can communicate to our audience, to the audience that we want to communicate to, and um, you know have the biggest box office that we can, obviously, on opening weekend. So we really have to to pay attention. Sometimes we watch a movie looking at it from a different lens than when the average person goes to watch a movie because they're excited because so-and-so is in the film. Um, we're watching to see who are we going to connect with? How are we going to connect with them? And will this make an impact um, at the box office on the weekend? Okay. So do you also, given that you're actually watching the movies from a different lens or from a marketer's lens, do you get the opportunity to advise them on creative? Like when you see the creative, do you go back to them and say, Hey, there was this one scene in the film that I think would work very well in a commercial spot. Is there any way we can shoehorn those five seconds in or anything like that? So from agency side, working on the, uh, you know, on this, no, you, the creative that you get is the creative that you get and you work with that from the other side, you do have, um, you do have the opportunity to go back and you do have the opportunity to tell them what, it's going to work in your market, what's not going to work in your market and what you would like to see in those spots. Yes. Working on movie clients, is it difficult to stay motivated or not at all? You really are looking forward to that next film and next challenge. I never found it difficult to be motivated. I mean, not every movie is going to be number one in the box office. And we all know that into the entertainment industry. We all know that, but I never found it hard to be motivated because the films that we worked on, I enjoyed so many of them, all different genres. And I, I always I always really wanted to do uh, right by the film, um, get it out what the filmmakers wanted to get it out there to the mass audience and have them just enjoy the product that we're giving them. So, no, I was never uh, I never had a hard time being motivated at all. After leaving Due North, you moved over to, can we call it Media Edge, M-E-C? Because I know yes. there was a name change in there. What do you call it, Media Edge? Yeah, it was Media Edge. It was Media Edge, and you got a chance to be one of the heads, correct me if I'm wrong, on the Paramount account. So after, you know, seven years or so on Sony, I moved over to uh, Media Edge, and I uh, started um, taking over the account. 
you know, uh, for uh, Paramount. And it was, again, uh, another wonderful experience uh, being the broadcast supervisor on that uh, client. How did things differ, though, between, say, Sony and Paramount and, and Due North and Media Edge? Because obviously there are going to be differences between working on, say, Molson and a CPG company. But right now you've got a pretty good, pretty good direct par- comparison you can make. The agency w- was larger, a lot more people there. And then at the time when I moved over, uh, I started having people that had to report into me and had to come to me with their markets and explain why they thought what they were putting together for the film was the best way to go about um, advertising this for for the, the audience. So that was one of the big things that was, uh, I guess, different when I took over on Paramount, when I came over to work on Paramount. Talk about having direct reports for the first time, because now, even though you're still part of the buying and planning process, it seems like you've moved into more of a coach than a player role. Exactly. So I was still involved because like you still teach and you still want to make sure they understand what you're looking for, what you're coming across and what you're trying to tell them that you want for, for these films. But you're right. You come across then now um, I'm a coach now and they're coming to me for guidance on something and they're coming to me and asking me if I think this looks right or if I think they're down the right path. So there was a bit of a curve there where it it was a little tricky where you had to be careful because I was so used to doing it that I had to step back a little bit from doing it and and put trust in people that they're learning and they can do it and they're going to move forward with their idea. So there was a little bit of that. um, uh, There was a little bit of a curve there to learn and once you got going though again it it was just wonderful products to work on so you'd say there was a bit of an adjustment period for you because something that happens quite frequently in sales is is that you get a really really good sales rep who's on the ball and they get the jump they get the chance to make the jump to management and they're kind of frozen because they can't get their hands dirty anymore or they make the mistake of trying to micromanage a little bit too much by doing the duties that they no longer have to do that's exactly it. I came across in the beginning as a micromanager and I didn't realize I was doing that because I thought I'm now in this position. So I'm going to teach you what I know or how I like to see things. But then I started doing it with them. So I was micromanaging. So then I had to, you know, at the time I had a wonderful boss that I was reporting to and she was great. She was a great mentor to me on this account. And she's like, you know what, take a step back for a minute. Now look at it from their point of view and look at it, how it's coming across and now see what's happening so yeah i had to to do i once i stepped back that's when i saw the difference and in the beginning it's a bit hard because you're so used to something and you're so used to the way you're doing something that when you have to take a step back and say no i got to take a pause here and make sure i i no longer do that or do this with them you know it, it took a little bit, but we got there. And then we, once we got there, things just rolled and, and things just kept getting better and better for, for that client and for, for the product that we had. How did the chance to go client side and work directly with Warner Brothers come about? After many years uh, on agency side, I found myself more and more interested on the other side of the business. I found myself more interested on being client side and seeing their perspective uh, of films and what they do within their own place. So an opportunity had presented itself uh, at, at Warner Brothers and I took uh, a chance, I went for it. And then I started my, uh, 
I started at Warner Brothers. What was the first film you worked on at Warner Brothers? I'm a big Warner Brothers fanboy, so a lot of questions coming up. Oh, boy. The first film? <laughs> Green Lantern was the first film that I got my hands, hands on. Tell us a little bit more about your duties on that side, specifically the relationship that you have with the agency, because I imagine now you're on the other side and they're kind of answering to you rather than it being the other way around. Correct. So my relationship with the agency, actually, it went well. You know, there were things that I was doing that I was working on on this side where I I was learning now what we do in-house before we present anything to the agency, before we handle anything with the agency. So, um There was definitely a learning curve from this side where I still had my agency hat on and I had to to slowly remove that hat and put on the client side hat. So I built a good relationship with the agency. Um, I wanted to make sure I had a good relationship with the agency because I'm going to deal with them every single day. And I wanted to make sure that we, we can be on the same page as much as possible for our films. That was, I think, my number one thing is making sure that it wasn't us against them, them against us. It was us together to put the best product out for the audience. And you reported or worked directly with the office in California. Talk a little bit about what that dynamic was like working with, I guess, where the water tower is for, for, for uh, Warner Brothers. That's, that's where it was, yep, in Burbank. I dealt directly with the home office, and um, a lot of the stuff we dealt directly with was obviously uh, we would get breakdowns of what the thinking was behind our films for the audience that we wanted to go after. I would definitely have hands-on um, uh, on the creative process where this is where I would sit there and be like, and say, you know, this scene would, would do well for us in this market or this scene, we can't have this because our market does not allow us to show this, um, somebody drinking alcohol in the spot or someone pointing a gun to someone's head in a spot. Like we are very different than, than what Burbank was able to, to put out in their, in, in their country. So this is where I was really hands-on with creative side and really hands-on in seeing the thinking behind why we're going after a certain audience, what type of, of uh, message we want to put out there and uh, hope for the best on, on, on opening weekend. Because you were working so cl- you were working for a studio and you were working so closely with the head office in California, did you ever get any chances to go down to California, go down to Burbank, go to the studio? Had any uh, I don't know encounters with any any stars that say a premiere? Uh, we did. There was a chance where we went down. We traveled down there and we were part of um, whatever they would be doing for a film that we were part of. Yes, there were. Um, and even here within our own market, when the, the stars came up here to promote the film, or especially during TIFF, which is, is very big for our industry, uh, when they came up to our market here and they wanted to uh, be part of it. Yeah, we, I was lucky enough to be uh, a part of this and to to see the ins and outs of how um, it works from this side. So it was wonderful. That, that I think, is, is probably the, the biggest... Um, one of the, the biggest perks and the biggest thing that comes from this job is that the people that you meet outside of, of the office that you work in, it, it's wonderful. And the people that you come across um, that are in these films and that you want to really do well for them and you really want to put um, them on the map for whatever film they're working with, it, it was something that was, was um, wonderful on this side of the business. I'm going to pry a little bit more 
you got to give us an example of an encounter, an encounter you've had with a Hollywood star. So we had a film, Cloud Atlas, came out a few years ago. It was, uh, it, it was a big film for us at TIFF. It was uh, something that had a lot of stars in it, and uh, Tom Hanks was one of the stars. And we were we were at the theater doing the premiere at TIFF, and he was he was sitting right in front of me. I'll never forget his face at the end of the film. You know, everyone's very excited for the film, and the reaction from everyone at the end of the film. You know, standing giving an ovation to to Halle Berry was part of this film. Tom Hanks was part of this film. The reaction that they got, his face. He was smiling from ear to ear, and he couldn't believe how excited people were for this film. He was just in awe, and he was looking around, and he was sitting there, and he, he we made eye contact, and he looked back at me, and he, he was just like, he mouthed the words, incredible. And he just loved being part of, of TIFF, and he loved being part of um, what the audience gave back to them. Uh, a few years later, I had a, a, another opportunity on... Um, Actually, this was just a few years ago. Um, one of the major, uh, you know, musical influences that I, I listen to to this day is still Bruce Springsteen. And he had a film that came out that coincided with an album that he was putting out. And he did the film for it. And he came into town. And, you know, a lot of people always say never meet, I guess, your heroes. I wouldn't say he's a hero, but never meet um, your, the stars because it'll ruin it for you. But I got to say, when I met him and I shook his hand... And quick conversation with him, nothing but nice came out of this man. He was humble. He was in awe, again, that people were just gravitating to this, this film and his story that he wanted to tell. And it was just something that you think because they're big stars that, you know, they're so used to it. But their body language and their facial expressions, it, it just tells you that they are very proud of, of what they do. Um, and the, the reaction that they get from, from us, they, they were just so grateful for it. Looking back at your time at Warner brothers, what's the biggest film you've worked on? And you can judge that by the budget you had to work with the pressure you were under to deliver, or just maybe the hype around the film altogether. Without a doubt, Harry Potter, those films were just in a, in another world. Um, so working on the last few Harry Potters, they, the audience loved every story of it. The audience stayed with the story from beginning to end. Um, everyone came out to see this. And that that film, I got to say, Harry Potter was the one that resonated, I think, the most with its fans. They, they are just, they were just out of this world for those, for those films. Okay, so just touching on one more thing. It's interesting you brought up Harry Potter. When the film is that big, do the especially with Harry Potter, because there were what, eight films? I think it was seven books, but they made eight films Correct. out of it. When you're getting into the final two or three films and, and the whole series is coming to that culmination, does the studio withhold, like cut budgets a little bit and go, you know what, we can ride the momentum? Like, how do you approach that? Because that seems like a film that could sell itself. Not to say that you shouldn't advertise for it, but it's almost like, you know what, you could be a little bit stingy relative to the budget of the film and it would still, it would still achieve its financial goals. We'd like to think that the film can sell itself, but not necessarily. So the budgets, yeah, like our budgets are never what they are for, a, you know, down in home office. Our budgets in this market, they're smaller and we have to be precise with what we want to do with these budgets for these films. So our goal with these films is to make sure that people remember, because these films are always a few years apart from each other. 
that people remember what the story was before and where the story is headed and how it's going to end. So our goal is to make sure that we are in as many homes and ears as possible and to make sure that people don't forget because there's a lot of noise out there from other films. There's a lot of superhero films. There's a lot of these these um, indie type films that get that um, grow get buzz and they grow from there and and they become awards darlings. So you want to make sure that you're competing with these other films. It, you know, it's easy to say, oh, it's Harry Potter. Everybody knows Harry Potter. That's great. But we want them there on opening weekend and we want them there to stay. And we're competing with a lot of other product that's out there who are trying to dethrone number one films. So, yeah, we had to we had to make sure that we were on top of our game for these films. Like many people in the world, the pandemic caused a bit of a speed bump in your career. What happened when all the movie theaters closed and how did that impact you? Yeah, that that was that was a, a, a speed bump. That was a large speed bump in our career. So um, how it impacted me, um, we lost our jobs. So I was um, they eliminated home office, eliminated the theatrical media jobs in Canada uh, from from us. And unfortunately, you know, we were all there was a group of us that that had to go. So, I mean, you can't put blame on anyone and you can't sit here and say it's this person or that person. You know, it's it's just what happened. It's it was out of a lot of our hands. It I can take pride in knowing that I wasn't let go because I wasn't up to par in doing what I was doing, or I wasn't doing well at my job. It was something that was happening around the world where many many people, you know, unfortunately lost their careers, and we had to to take us once this happened. I had to take a step back, catch my breath because. It comes as a shock and you catch your breath and you just have to to roll with it. Basically, that's what you got. You got to do. But as the universe would have it, you did not stray too far from Warner Brothers. You ended up working on the Warner Brothers account at OMD. So kind of come in full circle. You're back on Warner Brothers and you're back at OMD. Yeah, that's how it happened. Um, so a few months, a few months after all this went down, uh, I got a call. I got an opportunity uh, at OMD. And they called me and they said, hey, you know what? Uh, as you know, Warner Brothers is a busy account and we could use some of your experience and we could use a hand. And they asked if I'd be interested in coming on board. And, you know, I was with I'm familiar with the account. I'm familiar with, you know, everything we do on here. So I thought, you know, this is this is a, a perfect match. This is something that, um, yeah, I can come on. I can help where I can help. I can I can be part of, continue to be part of the entertainment category here. And so I did. Did your approach to Warner Brothers change from there? Because now you're kind of back in the dugout, I could say, being a player and less of a coach <laughs> in this instance here. But you're back on a client that you understood very intimately for, how long were you at Warner Brothers for? About ten, 10 years. 10 years, yeah. for 10 years. So was that kind of like, how do I put it? Was it like riding a bike? Well, yeah, a little bit, because because I knew the client. And I was very intimate with the client and I knew the ins and outs on that side. You know, it, there wasn't this huge transition that I was going through. There wasn't this issue of what am I doing? Oh, my goodness. So I felt very, very comfortable in what I was doing. I felt comfortable in the people that I was working with because I worked with the agency on a daily basis. So I was coming on board working with people that I was working with every day. So I was very comfortable coming over and I was very comfortable in 
what I was going to be doing. So yeah, I, I, I wasn't like fish out of water. What is happening again? Agency world. Oh my goodness. Um, no, I was, I was happy to come on. I was happy to take part of it and to continue my career on the entertainment uh, business. Give us some insight into what planning a movie is like during a pandemic, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff you don't know. Like you don't know if the theaters are going to be open next month. Uh, you don't know if they are going to be open, whether or not it's going to be half capacity or people are going to have to wear masks, which might discourage some people from going to the theater altogether. Then there's the other, uh, the other thing we haven't spoken about, I guess you call it the elephant in the room. And that was Warner brothers made the decision for, I think it was 2021 for at least most of their films. I actually know it was late 2020. Cause I think it started with wonder woman, 1984 where they, yeah, where they were going to release them at least in the United States theatrically and simultaneously on HBO max. Yeah. You have, when you're planning a film now in a pandemic, you have to have many, many balls in play because you're trying to plan for in theater. Great. But then something's going to happen where it's been happening over and over where theaters are closing or theaters are like at half capacity or even less than that. And you're right. A lot of people are like, I don't want to wear a mask. I'm not going to a theater. So you have to have a, a contingency in place. So a lot of it happened where you also look at the streaming service that you have here in Canada and you're putting it out to the streamers and you're putting it out for them day and date. We weren't day and date on every single title, the way Burbank went with their with their films in uh, 2021 but there were a lot of them that we had to do that because we were in such flux of what was going on in the theater world we were we didn't know if, like you said are we open next week are we open in two months where are we going to be we just didn't know and you also have to be aware the box office projections are completely different now because you can't say you can't look at the numbers that you were looking at before obviously and think that's what the films are going to do. So we had to start all over again, looking at what that bar was going to be for box office. What was that going to look like? What is it going to look like at half capacity? What's it going to look like when we're looking at streaming numbers? And where do we meet? What's the middle that we meet at? So, and, and this is still something that's ongoing because as you know, in our market, we're, we just started opening up. And we just started opening up to half capacity. So uh, we're still in that, uh, we're still in flux as to what are we going to do with our films? We're putting them all at the theaters, wherever they're open. Great. But we know a lot of them aren't open yet. So we got to look at backup plans. So yeah, it, it's, it's a stressful, you know, it's very stressful on people who are trying to, to work with budgets that they have and work with the plans that they have to try and put, the best product out there and and try to reach as many people as you can with the situation that you're in. Do you also judge things on a provincial level? Because technically in this country, the provinces have control over whether yeah. or not movie theaters can open and close. And a great example is Omicron. I mean, they shut down movie theaters in most of the major provinces, but Saskatchewan said, screw it. We got to learn to live with this. And they stayed open right through. So yeah. I guess, so I guess you, do you guys analyze it that way and go, okay, if Saskatchewan's going to be wide open, we're going to look at it this way. Montreal, oh, sorry, not Montreal. Quebec is going to be at half capacity. So we're going to have to look at it this way. Ontario's close. So don't even bother looking that way. Like, yeah. did you find, so your postmortems were really, really localized. You had to, you, you were no longer looking at it nationally. I mean, you are looking at it nationally, like, how, you know, 
from from coast to coast to coast what's open what does it look like where are we going to be but then you're looking at like what are they doing in this province okay so they're open so we can put films there exactly as you said so we can put films in whatever province was running we were lucky enough to put our films in those markets but the quebec market as an example they shut down completely on on you know months ago for everything so where we had our plans in place and our films dubbed and ready to go canceled gone you know you can't put them out because we're not going to be able to put them out there it's going to go streaming service and we're closed and sorry but that's how it has to be and it's not you know this thing that that has taken place a pandemic it's not something that is um you know through anyone's fault that it's causing all these closures it's just something that's out of our control that we have to look at new ways of reaching our audience um new measurement of what what are we getting back for our audience so this is something that we're all learning it, it, it was a huge huge learning curve for all of us of where we headed and what's this going to look like down the road and because i guess at this point because Warner Brothers had let go of their their team in Toronto and you were working at OMD now, I imagine you were dealing directly with Burbank. Well, they still had, okay, the, they still had the home office here in Toronto open, different divisions, different departments. So uh, my, my the, the PR portion of the business still stayed open. So we did still deal with the Toronto office for PR stuff. But yes, the majority of media, we ran through our home office in Burbank because they're the ones that started looking and started looking at what we had to do here in our market. So we had to deal with them. So was it up to OMD then or yourself to let Burbank know, hey, the goalposts were just moved again in Canada. Here's what it's like. Here's what the opening pr- is projected to look like. The bottom could fall out again. Like it's not like if, say, for example, that theatrical team was still here in Toronto where they would be completely in tune and understanding what was happening here. Yeah, we had to let them know. We had to let them know and, and we had to let Burbank know that, hey, we just, you know, Premier just said this, Prime Minister just said this, we're closing shop, we're opening again. So it's ongoing discussions. This is ongoing discussions with um, the people in, in the Toronto office and the people in Burbank because we're the agency. We're the ones that provide the information. We're the ones that are doing the research on this because we're the ones that are putting all the plans together and knowing where we got to be and where we're going to be. So it's up to us to make sure that the client understands what is happening in in our markets um so yeah it's coming from us and we have to let them know and it's just you know sometimes people just shake their heads and they don't understand it but it's something that we just have to keep moving forward with and hope for the best down the road larry this has been fantastic thank you so much for your time are you ready for rapid fire questions (laughs) i don't know let's see all right here we go so number one the campaign you're most proud of uh there have been there there have been many over the years there you know a lot of films that we've done a lot of great work on but one film we did uh you know a few years ago aquaman the first aquaman we were really um in touch with uh local communities and we worked with rogers hometown hockey and that was a really fun and successful campaign um it just just seeing how people interacted with our film how much they loved what we were doing with it. It was just a fun campaign to work on, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, doing Aquaman. By any chance, not to get sidetracked, are you watching The Peacemaker on Crave? I have not started that yet. No, no. Okay. But I've heard, yeah, I've heard like a lot of great things about it. Well, stay away from any spoilers from the uh, season finale because 
there is a let's just say that uh james gunn did a really good service a really good service to the dc extended universe i'll say that much all right all right good your favorite movie oh i i have so many that i that i enjoy um across different genres i don't think i could pick a favorite i go back to the golden age of hollywood you know i really enjoy black and white films i really enjoy silent era films you know jimmy stewart is probably one of my favorite actors from back then that i really enjoy watching so I can't say I have, a, you know, a favorite film, but I would say probably Golden Age of Hollywood. Those films are, are ones that I really, really enjoy to this day. Okay, so let me ask you this, because everyone has a film that they can watch over and over and over again. What film is that for you? Again, there's so many that I like watching over and over. Um, uh, let's come back to this one, okay? All right, we'll come back to it at the end. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Wow, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, I don't know. Uh, one of my uh, favorite actors and still going um, is is Tom Hanks. I, I always loved his films. Um, I always liked when he plays a little bit of the goofier side like he did, did in Turner and Hooch. Um, I loved watching him in, in Bosom Buddies. So a lot of his films, so I, I guess I'd go with Tom Hanks. Okay, and my follow-up, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? What would I call that? Uh, probably the curmudgeon. People always say, you know, I have a sarcastic sense of humor. I can be a curmudgeon. So, um, and it's fine. I don't mind being a cranky old man. So I think I would go with the curmudgeon. Your favorite book? Oh, favorite book. Um, I read the Springsteen one a few years ago and uh, 600 pages of just phenomenal, phenomenal stories in there from him in his own words. I thought I'd say that's probably my favorite one. I, I truly enjoy biographies, whether it's musicians, athletes, success stories of people. So uh, biographies, and I would definitely say the Springsteen one was is probably my favorite one. Your favorite song? Oh, the big one. I'll say I'm going to say uh, probably Thunder Road by Springsteen. I love that song. I love the way it starts. I love the way it ends. Uh, I love the story that he tells in it, the simple story that he tells in it uh of wanting to get out and, and and being out there with his love yeah I, that's probably my favorite one the best advice you have ever received i, I don't know what the best advice i've ever received I, i've been surrounded by good people i've been you know I've, I've been lucky to have some great bosses over the years i'm not sure what the best advice is though that i've received i'm not sure victor if you could go back in time and give your younger self advice what would you say Oh, I would say don't give up so easily. Like stay the course and give it time for things to work out. I would sometimes find myself just, ah, I'm done, moving on. It's okay, move on. But I, I would say don't give up so easy. Stay the course and, and give it time for things to work out. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Oh, I would definitely, I, I, I'd like to believe I would definitely be somewhere in radio doing something on the airwaves whether it be producing or writing or, or just being on air, um, I would definitely be in radio for sure. I, I still enjoy it to this day and just connecting with people. It's, it's my favorite thing. And we're going to call back to that question earlier. Okay, so we've established that you cannot pick a particular movie as your favorite movie, but is there a film that you can watch over and over and over again? And here to preface that, for me, it's Ocean's Eleven, and the original Tim Burton Batman. I can watch yeah. those over and over again. I can watch over and over again. I would say Vertigo, the Alfred Hitchcock thriller with uh, Jimmy Stewart in it. 
I've seen that, I don't know how many times, countless times. I just love the story. I love the way that Hitchcock just films this. And I, I just, like, again, Jimmy Stewart is just, uh, I'm a big fan of his work, a big fan of everything he's done. That I can watch that one, and I have over and over again. Larry, this has been fantastic. It was great to catch up. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Victor. Thank you very much for, uh, you know, going through this and uh, doing this with me. It was great. I loved it. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.